Welcome to this special edition of the Australian Naval History Podcast Series. I'm Professor Rob McLaughlin from the University of Wollongong. In 1991, a book entitled Reflections on the RAN examined the development of the Royal Australian Navy from its colonial naval origins to its development to a modern, medium-power navy. The book was based on a series of papers given at the History Conference held at the Australian Defence Force Academy in 1989. The event reflected the then heightened interest in the serious study of Australia's naval history. Three young serving naval officers were behind the conference and they also edited that book. They were Tom Frame, James Goldrick and Peter Jones. Each of these three sailor scholars then went on to high academic and naval rank, becoming esteemed naval historians and, very relevantly for this podcast, founder members of the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales. This podcast is in fact the 101st and final podcast of the Australian Naval History Podcast series, established by that Naval Studies Group. So for the final podcast, we thought it quite appropriate to bring together once more these three no longer quite so young naval officers to reflect on Australia's naval history. There's also a great symmetry to the fact that all three have long and distinguished associations with this podcast series as experts, compares and organisers. They are today, firstly, Professor Tom Frame, who was the inaugural compare for the Australian Naval History podcast series and is the noted author of over 30 books on the Navy, politics and religion. Secondly, Rear Admiral James Goldrick, who was the recipient of the 2022 Hattendorf Prize for Naval History and is the author of four books, as well as contributing to many others. He took part in the very first Australian Naval History podcast, which was on the Battle of the Coral Sea. And finally today, Vice Admiral Peter Jones, who has been the instigator and producer of the Naval History podcast series. He is the author of two books and is the president of the Australian Naval Institute. Well, thank you all for joining me. So in this episode, we want to talk about the broad sweep of Australian naval history and discuss some of the notable episodes from the Australian Naval History podcast series, which will, of course, remain available for everyone to listen to in future years. So first off, I might ask each of you, what is distinctive about Australia's naval history? Tom, let's start with you. Well, when you look at a map of the world and you see Australia, the first thing you notice is it's a great big island surrounded by a whole lot of water. And in as much as Australia's uh, maritime zone is ice-free and it's used for commerce and for a range of other purposes, including recreation, um, the task of providing for the security of that maritime zone is immense. And so for Australia, right from the very start, the fact that there were um, two coasts, um, I mean, we often think of the Southern Ocean as almost being non-existent, but the West Coast, the East Coast, where people mainly uh, lived, and that brought particular challenges when it came to both acquiring ships, where you would locate bases, where the ships would be sent, what kind of operations you do, who would who would be recruited. So for Australia, with such a large landmass, where an enemy could decide to project force at any point, uh, or even to interdict shipping around the coastline, that seems to me to be a key issue, and one that, to some degree, wasn't the subject of the close analysis um, that it has been the subject to probably in the last you know, 20 to 30 years. Indeed. James, some thoughts from you. Uh, as a corollary, the thing that's striking to me about the Australian Navy is the extent to which for Navy its size it got everywhere. And that, I think, reflects the other dimension uh, of Australia's geographical situation is we're dependent and we're connected and we're at the periphery. 
So if the whole system is under threat, we need to support the whole system. So in World War One, you have Australian ships operating off the west coast, sorry, off the both the west and the east coast of North America, um, in the West Indies, in the North Sea, in the Mediterranean and the uh, Adriatic, uh, in the South China Sea, all over the Indian Ocean and in the Pacific. And that is the same case in World War Two. Australians are present at the first battle fleet action of World War Two in the Mediterranean. Calabria or Ponte Stilo as the Italians call it in 1940 and they were present at the last battle fleet action Surigao Strait in 1944 in the Leyte campaign and that's continued since and so I think for a navy of its size the extent to which Australians are present is extraordinary and indeed HMAS Sydney the name certainly in conflict since the start of the 20th century the name of the ship has been in more conflicts than any other warship name. It's an incredible piece of our history. So from geography to internationalism, Peter, your thoughts? Yeah, so to follow on that, um, I think as a result of what um, those sort of influences that Tom and James have talked about, it's meant that our Navy has been closely allied to the preeminent democratic naval power of the time. First off it was it was Britain and then it was the United States. But the Australian Navy was never a clone of either. It was very, very distinctive. Um, part of that is the national character, but also part of it was a conscious decision from the very beginning and, and in part it's because we're a small country to have a, v- a very egalitarian approach to recruiting people um, both as sailors and officers, and in one of our early podcasts talking about the Royal Australian Naval College, made the point that there was a conscious decision where the government would pay for uh, tuition and training uh, and uniforms, um, unlike the Royal Navy of the time, where it really their officer corps was drawn from the the middle class. So, so I think that's uh, quite a distinctive aspect about the Australian Navy. So in this podcast series, we've been very fortunate. We've had 159 different panellists over the seven series. Now, one of them was the then 99-year-old Rear Admiral Guy Griffiths, and he said that the fascinating thing about history is that it is indeed about people. So I'd like to ask each of you, who, is the, who, who are the personalities that stand out for each of you in Australian naval history, and, and also why? So, Tom. Because of the place where we joined, uh, William Rook Creswell stands out for everybody as being almost as much a politician as he was a sailor and someone who negotiated a whole range of administrative, political, economic um, and I would say partisan interests, as in where would you put the Navy, would you put it in New South Wales or Victoria, those kinds of things. Um, he's just an extraordinary individual who comes to Australia, adopts it as his home, becomes the father of the Royal Australian Navy. And I remember when I joined, just after I turned 16 at the at HMAS Creswell, seeing this um, painting of him, and he just looked like every other senior officer of that kind of era. But the more I learnt about him, the more I thought that you know he was a man of intellectual substance and that... Um, Probably for the greatest period of our naval history, um, there's not been the evaluation of either his intellectual contribution or that more generally. Um, in fact, when I joined the Navy, there was almost the view that, you know, don't let education get in the way of your training. 
And so there has been an intellectual theme there of particular individuals, there may be one in a decade and things like that, who was able to speak in a way, I think, that transcends the run-of-the-mill, very hands-on practical experience that, that others got. Um, I think more recently, um, the Navy's produced a number of people who, rightly, deserve to be called scholars. Um, they're people that have transcended their own experience and they've tried to understand both the experience of other navies and nations but they've also sought to compare and contrast bits of our Australian naval experience and do that, I think, very well. Um, I mean, they will blush if I say both Peter and James have been exemplars of that particular model whereby um, the attempt has been made to say, you know, look, it's one thing to put you know, ships and sailors to sea, but it is another thing to look at how does that relate then to national interest, how does it relate to the ebbs and flow of our economic performance and if there are particular individuals, you can you can go through honours and awards and, you know, he got a George Cross and he did that and that's it kind of exemplary. But the people that stood out to me and the ones that I thought were impressive were those that um, when there weren't degrees, thought degrees were important. Um, they thought the, the, the life of the mind was important. And I remember, I think about the second or third thing I ever published was a review of a book on Lord Fraser of North Cape. And he'd set aside two hours every afternoon uh, where he didn't want to be disturbed and he just wanted to think. And I thought, that is really impressive. And then all of us worked, ironically, or perhaps typically, predictably, um, for the Chief of Naval Staff as his speechwriter. And he didn't almost have that, if you could call it a luxury, he didn't kind of have that. Uh, it was always, who's the next person in through the door? So I do think that um, we've been blessed, I think, with both British and Australian officers who have been kind of thoughtful and incisive and analytical, um, but they don't tend to stand out because, you know, regrettably we do the, you know, great men, great deeds, uh, who got what medal and when, uh, when I think the longer term contribution and the more profound one is those for whom, you know, the names would, would not be known. Um, and I think James and um, Peter, I think, would agree with me that very much they're, they're, they're unsung. Well, James, you are one of those sailor scholars. Who stands out for you? Um, <clears throat> one who's not a scholar, but I think the RA and O's, uh, not so much its survival, but I think its professional uh, ethos more than anyone else is Francis Hyde. Uh, he's an extraordinary man. He was the Chief of Naval Staff from 1931 to 1937. He was the second RAN officer to be Chief of Naval Staff after Creswell. Like Creswell, he'd been British... Uh, he'd come across, he, the interesting thing is he actually had a lower middle class background in England. He'd been in the Royal Naval Reserve, he couldn't join the Royal Navy by the standard means, he just wasn't the right class and his father had no money, he was a clerk. Um, Hyde uh, was commissioned into the Royal Naval Reserve and then transferred to the Royal Navy, especially because of a brilliant essay he'd written on the Russo-Japanese War. And the irony is it seems both Lord Charles Beresford and Sir John Fisher, those two great enemies in later years, supported his special transfer. But in the Royal Navy, and it's this uh, point that Peter's raised, which did not have that egalitarian instinct, he actually found himself, as a permanent Royal Navy officer, the subject of um, a great deal of isolation um, and not contempt, but you know he was just not uh, his... He wasn't from the right draw. And so when the opportunity came to join the Australian Navy as its initial flotilla commander, he grabbed it and he stayed. 
Um, and he's also, I think, representative of not only the link of the Australian Navy and the Royal Navy, but the fact that people consciously did, you know, look to go to Australia and adopt an Australian outlook. He's been very badly treated, I think, historically, um, particularly by what I call the, con the continentalist school um, in relation to the main fleet to Singapore strategy because, of course, he was chief of naval staff at a critical time. What tends to get neglected is that he had as hard a time with ministers as any of his army colleagues did because he, yes, he was devoted to the idea of the main fleet. That was how it had to work, but he had somewhat different ideas from Whitehall and the Admiralty. And the politicians basically would take the Admiralty as being, uh, I think Stanley Bruce actually said the Admiralty's advice is disinterested, which of course it never was. The Brits had their own agendas. So he had to fight that. He had to fight the through a navy which was on its bare bones um, and was resuscitating only very slowly. He also had to fight, he had cancer of the mouth um, early in his time as chief. Um, he was cured, uh, but that would have made life both painful and difficult for many years. Uh, but it's quite clear he was very, he was devoted to the RN, and he was the one who, in a sense that I think was important for the link, he insisted you couldn't get promoted in the Australian Navy unless you'd been recommended for promotion in that rank on Royal Navy service according to Royal Navy standards. And, you know, that sounds quite, you know, oh, you're just fitting in with the Brits. No, what he was do why he did that was in order to set a quality because there were a certain number of officers who were pretty ordinary and got bowled out during senior service with the Royal Navy's being fairly ordinary. Um, and to some extent we avoided, I think, some of the problems experienced by both the Australian Army and the Air Force uh, in disputes between senior officers, some of whom weren't up to it. <laughs> um, and what he was really about was quality, ensuring we were just as good, if not better. Quite a legacy. Peter, you've, you've in fact written a, a wonderful biography of one of our very distinguished panellists, obviously Guy Griffiths, but who else stands out for you? So when I was uh, researching um, the first class to enter the Royal Australian Naval College, the 1913 entry, um, which ended up the book, The Australia's Argonauts, two uh, individuals really stood out for me. One was Harold Farncombe, who uh, went on to be um, one of the first Australian task group commanders. So he, for the bulk of the Philippines campaign in World War II, he was a task group commander of the Australian squadron, and also he was commanding operationally some... Um, some American ships and he just demonstrated a, I, I think he was far and away the best task group commander we've produced just his tactical ability his bravery he, um, the, the sailors um, and officers called him Fearless Frank he'd stand on the bridge wing while kamikazes were sort of um, in flight um, he uh, a person of great intellect um, he helped oversee that transition that um, of having a much more robust and comprehensive staff to uh, to manage a task group. Um, reading his papers, it's clear that he really understood what is required in terms of training um, in logistics. Um, he advocated, for example, a logistic airlift flight 
to to the task group in in the Philippines from Australia. Um, so he understood all the things that are required to to make a task group work. And importantly, he saw that link that a task group commander has to have strategically back home um, to, um, to 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 um, the head of the of the navy and government about what the what the task group was doing, but also with his American uh, immediate superiors um, to make sure that the, uh, the the contribution that the RN ships was making was maximised. Um, he went off to be the first uh, aircraft um, carrier commanding officer that Australia produced. He, he commanded a, a British um, aircraft carrier. He really um, understood the importance of aircraft carriers, wrote a, a very um, interesting paper on the conduct of um, aircraft operations and tried to um, share that knowledge. Um, he was, though, uh, unfortunately a product of that system where because of the losses of, uh, of commanding officers in, in uh, um, re- that resulted from um, losses of some of our ships, he spent all but a couple of months of the entire war in command of ships um, and he succumbed to alcoholism. Um, he left the Navy early, but he he beat that addiction. He went off to be a successful barrister. But I think he's a real example of um, of that professionalism and that the um, uh, just a, his strategic vision was very impressive. Um, the other person was Rupert Long in that class, someone who didn't rise above commander, did not command a ship but um, of an individual in the Royal Australian Navy, he probably uh, individually made as much a contribution to the World War II war effort than any other person. He was Director of Naval Intelligence. He did a a number of major reforms to improve the collection and dissemination of intelligence. He was the the person who enabled uh, another classmate, Eric Felt, run the very famous Coast Watchers. He helped facilitate things. He could w- work an office. He knew where bureaucratically you had to, what you had to do to make things happen. And he illustrates to me the, um, the importance of having people of intelligence and suppleness of mind, both at sea but also at shore, to make a Navy, uh, you know, maximise its, uh, its contribution to the nation. Can I just say, it's interesting, Rob, that we've chosen people who are long dead <laughs> and that one of the things that I would say is the passage of time is important in part because the personal foibles um, are forgotten or unknown. So there are some people that I think are impressive, but as in, sometimes as individuals, they were difficult, difficult to get on with and could be unpleasant. And I think that it'll probably be in 20, 30 years' time that people start to say, oh, those that serve, maybe it's in Vietnam or the Gulf Wars or things like that, where they're not known and it's it's only their deeds and not their personalities that are judged. And I think that's the thing that I've observed, That not that naval officers are litigious, but that when you talk about so-and-so, oh, he wasn't a great man, he did, you know, this, that and something else that reduces his lustre in the public eye. So I, I just kind of yeah. just make that observation so, as we travel. So, in fact, Farncombe is probably a case in point. He, uh, you know, he, he, he could be um, quite fierce and, uh, as one of his staff said, he was an acquired taste. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, it was uh, interesting. Francis Hyde, who, of course, nurtured them um, and Farncombe, in fact, worked in Navy office as a staff officer. 
uh, Francis Hyde actually said that if he could combine Harold Farncombe and his classmate John Collins and the best qualities of both, because Collins had many strengths, particularly on the what I call the careful public relations side, that Farncombe didn't, but if he could combine the two of them, he would have the perfect chief of naval staff. Switching for a moment from people to podcasts. So across the the previous 100 podcasts, this series has ranged through a very diverse uh, set of incidents, examples, people, personalities, case studies. What are some of the podcasts that stand out most for each of you? So, Tom. I mean, obviously the one, uh, because I hosted it, was about the Naval College, uh, because I did think that, at least in my time, I joined in January 79, that my experience, I think, to be honest, was a wasted opportunity. Um, I don't think anywhere near the effectiveness could have been achieved in that period. So looking back on what the college was established to be, what it became, what it did, what its legacies were, I mean, I had a, I had a dog in that fight, as they say, and I was very interested in that. I didn't share my own opinions. Um, and what I've said today, I think it's about the first time I've ever said that I thought it was wasted opportunity. My, because my first captain has now gone to you know his eternal reward, and um, I thought that you know the, the attitude that was there uh, when I arrived was you know this one of you know don't let your training get in the way of your education get in the way of your training, and that we were cleaners and that we were tolerated and that you know if we were the cream of the navy. He said we'd turn to custard, and so all of us who've because we were so young, at least the three of us were junior entries, we were 15, 16 when we joined, that does give you a certain trajectory about the things you will do, won't do, things you like, things you don't like, and the people you were drawn to and others you were repelled by. Um, so I, inevitably for me that that was one because it spoke to my own experience. The other one I think was the, was the submarine um, podcast, which was in a series, because it was quite remarkable that we went from a standing start to having a submarine squadron in a really relatively short space of time. Fits and starts and problems and drawing from the past and having a hybrid, um, you know, uh, personnel establishment of both Brits and Australians. And I just thought it was fascinating. And I, again, because I'd wanted to be submarine until the Navy found out I had asthma, um, I just thought that some of the personalities that I encountered in submarines were really quite impressive. And my early experience of being at Cena Tama and Oxley um, with Peter Briggs and Peter Horobin, um, two very different characters, but absolutely significant in the development of our own submarine service. Um, I, again, thought that really engaged me. For people who have not been to see in a submarine, it's a unique experience. Um, I suspect as a as a percentage of our population, it's 0.0001% or something like that. And yet, submarines are crucial to both our strategic outlook, both past and present, and certainly for the future. So those have been important to me. Um, many of the others uh, were just curios. Uh, there were things I didn't know, things I picked up. And so, like anything, we write about the things that personally interest us. We listen to podcasts that personally interest us. Not that they're uninteresting, um, but they, if they touch upon our own experience, they're going to have a greater imperative sense to us, I think. And I would recommend the Submarine podcast to anyone thinking about the, uh, the uh, fascinating process we're about to go through with a new type of submarine, indeed, because many of those listens will have some echoes. James, what about you? Well, for ones I was involved in, I think the podcast, which of course is a video as well on YouTube, and I think is the one that has the highest um, strike rate, it's over 90,000 now, uh, is the Battle of the Coral Sea. And that of course was interesting in its own right for getting all the dimensions, but 
one felt it was particularly worthwhile in that you had a sense this is going to get out to an audience who don't understand a lot of the complexities and also the, the role played by um, Australian forces in it. Um, so I think that was um, memorable from that point of view. I think it was to touch on Tom's what Tom was saying. It's actually the podcasts which talked about aspects of the Navy which aren't talked about often enough. So most recently we've had some terrific ones on engineering, uh, what's going on inside the propulsion and other systems of the ship, you know, from people who did it. Um, and, of course, most recently the uh, one on cooking at sea and how that's changed and evolved and what it means. And it's that window on aspects that are vital but actually don't get sufficient attention uh, often enough. And, of course, um, the nice thing was the pleasure with which those who actually were invited to do it came and they, we had I don't think we had any trouble getting them to talk um, but it was fascinating listening to it, uh, to get that perspective. And indeed, that experience in the podcast series of putting out these many unknown things the general public just doesn't understand, I think has been one of its particular strengths. Peter? Um, probably two episodes I'd uh, highlight. Um, the, the one that we um, approached with the most trepidation was the... In fact, it was two episodes on the Melbourne Voyager um, uh, collusion and the resulting... Um, uh, high, uh, Royal Commission or Royal Commissions, plural. Um, and in fact, uh, Tom has written probably still the, the definitive book on, on that event, which was invaluable. And But to have um, the, the, the son of the commanding officer of Melbourne, Brian Robinson, uh, take part, um, uh, the, the daughter of Sir Lawrence Street, Justice Emmett, take part, um, and Pony Moore, who is a Petty officer on Voyager to vividly describe getting out of uh, Voyager in its uh, final moments was just uh, quite amazing. But to to do that episode, we needed to actually have done quite a few episodes before to to um, get our skills up and also our courage up to try. Um, still a a, a, um, a very uh, emotive um, topic. Um, um, but one that uh, is my favourite is actually the, um, the the one on the 1998 Sydney Hobart rescue, which, uh, Rob, you were compared. Um, and we were extremely fortunate to have uh, most of the air crew from HMAS Melbourne's Tiger 75, the Seahawk helicopter, which was involved in the rescue of the Winston Churchill survivors. And we had John Steamer Stanley, one of the, um, uh, one of the sailors that was rescued, uh, very vividly described that rescue at night in, in that stormy stormy seas. Um, and I th one of the things I think about that uh, episode is it so vividly um, puts you into that, um, inside that helicopter, um, and you see some attributes about the Navy is a very informal way of teamwork, um, and um, but based on a hell of a lot of training um, and a lot of confidence in the training that they, they do. Um, but then when you're um, listening to um, Warren Officer Shane Pashley um, describe when he was in that helicopter going down into that stormy sea to rescue someone, 
also the, the bravery that, uh, that where people put their life on the line. So that one really stands out for me. Yeah, it stands out for me too as, even, uh, as being a competitor. That one it was fascinating to hear those stories. Just incredible. First hand. Well, I'd like to take us out a bit for a moment now and thinking about all of the different topics we've dealt with in the, in the podcast series, I'd like to ask each of you about the value of studying Australian naval history. Why do we study it and, and in fact, should we continue to do this? Tom? I mean, the first thing I'd say broadens horizons. Um, the experience you can't have because you can't have every experience in life, you can vicariously have through others. And so... At times when we say, oh, you know, the Australian sailor is the greatest or the Australian soldier is the bravest, you know, well, that isn't true. Um, all you have to do is read the stories of other human beings in other services at other times and other places and you realise that there's one thing about human nature is it's largely unchanging and that therefore what you mightn't have experienced in life you can acquire from the experience of, of, of others and I think that's really important. So broadening horizons. I mean, when I, when I joined the Navy, I just read novels. I didn't read any naval history at all. In fact, I couldn't even tell you the names of the three Adams-class DDGs um, and I'd only ever been on an American ship. Uh, warship before I joined, which I don't think stood me in terribly good stead, but I got in nonetheless. But so it's 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 broadening horizons. Oh, I hadn't thought about that. I didn't know that. When you have broader horizons, it makes it easy to compare and contrast because there's lots of things you can say. Oh, that's like this, or it's unlike that, or when the Americans had that, or the Canadians did this, or the South Africans had a collision, and that's the way they did with it, or their legislation enabled the civil courts to look into a to into a maritime matter. So I think broadening horizons has got to be good. And the second thing, and I think, again, to be um, highly personalistic about it, is that um, the customs and traditions that shape the Navy come from somewhere. And what are their value? What are their origins? Um, what's their veracity? Those kinds of things, I think, are, are important for those who serve and those who support them to understand the forces, factors and influences that oblige them to act in a certain way and acquire a certain outlook. And... I remember it wasn't until some years later that I read Norman Dixon's On the Psychology of Military Incompetence, which had some wonderful little naval things in there, and I, I thought they're just, just terrific. Um, because it always struck me as being odd, why, why, and I think James and Peter did this, why when I was in my first year did I have to paint rocks white, and in my second year um, paint paths green, in my third year paint gutters red? And um, there We was didn't even have any paint. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that kind of tradition. Was I part of something bigger than myself where something was going on to shape me to a particular kind of person? Um, what was that? And um, I, I must admit, I, I joined totally ignorant and I had no idea. And then with time, as I spoke to more and more people, read more and more things, and then started to break into primary sources. In other words, that what I was reading in books may not in fact be correct. And I think that's part of the thing that led me to uh, write about Voyager for my doctoral thesis, is that all this stuff had been written about Voyager and there'd been two books written by the same Royal Navy Admiral, which I thought in the end were pretty ordinary. Um, so I got the records out and started looking at Royal Commission transcript, interviewing people, things like that. And I thought, wow, the story actually looks quite different um, from a number of different perspectives. And certainly writing about Voyager, because you felt like I was at a game of poker standing behind everybody and I could see their cards. Um, and I think that the, the value of study there for me was that I then had to research and, and write my own narrative. And that then makes you realise that preferences and prejudices of the historian are always present 
Um, now, some of them declare them, some of them don't, but but they're there. The things that appeal to us, the things that impress us, um, all of those are a function of the people that we are. So I think taken holistically, it's given me a much better appreciation. And thankfully, like when we did our seminar in 1989, um, the kind of works on naval history could almost be summarised on two pages. Um, there were so few. There wasn't that much to read. And when I went to the War Memorial, as some of the first summer vacation scholar in 1985, someone I was complaining about naval history. I said, why don't you start writing it? That was, that was the thing, you know, well, why don't you start writing it? If you think it's so thin, why don't you start writing it? And James was already writing, um, publishing then. I think Peter had sort of dipped the toe. And so um, if the responsibility comes for creating a record that, that is a comprehensive one, um, some, I mean, inevitably it's going to be some naval officers and some sailors, senior sailors, uh, who've got the sufficient acquaintance of both the experience and the material to be able to write something compelling. Well, in a room full of distinguished naval historians, it'd be very interesting to get your perspective, James. In a severely practical sense, um, the value is understanding not only where the Navy's coming from and its relationship with the nation, but the extent to which the challenges the Navy faces, um, the challenges Australia's defence faces, um, are perennial and to an extent cyclical, and um, there are some factors which don't change, and there are some factors which do. And we're working currently on a history of the Chiefs of Naval Staff uh, between 1901 and 1997, uh, which in fact was inspired by a Chief of Navy saying to us that the book to which both I and Tom contributed on British First Sea Lords was the most useful thing he read in preparation to be Chief of Navy. But the point is, going through that book, it's quite apparent, chapter by chapter, chief by chief, that they're facing many of the same problems. Um, and problems go away and come back. Um, currently, the Navy is facing a major problem, which I think it has for most of its life, on how do we get sufficient recruiting, but even more, how do we retain people for long enough to have them fully experienced in sufficient numbers. And you can track back and see how it keeps coming up and why does it keep coming up. So I think it's that, uh, really Tom touched on it already, it's that understanding the context, understanding, you know, put it colloquially, where the bodies are buried, um, which gives you a much better basis for being able to deal with things. And indeed, to deal with the well-meaning good idea um, that is trying to be imposed on you, uh, that you can respond to from a basis of knowledge, just, just not a conservative reaction, uh, either positively or negatively, because it probably has been tried before. So um, I guess there's two aspects. One is uh, we've talked about uh, Australia being a maritime nation where you need to be able to tell the maritime story. Um, and, uh, and so that's why I think it's important uh, that there's uh, authors such as uh, Mike Carlton who, as a, an accomplished journalist, can relate to, um, to Australians that naval story um, in a, a very vivid way and um, approachable way. Um, speaking from myself as a, as a naval officer, I always found um, naval history was, uh, as Tom talked about, it gave you insights into the culture of the organisation you're in. Um, like lots of people in, in my life, the most conse consequential thing I did professionally was not when I was at the end of my career. So it wasn't as an admiral, 
he was actually as a captain, as a task group commander of the multinational maritime interception force in the Gulf. And one of the uh, the most useful things I did in in getting my mind around what myself and my staff and and the ships of the task group had to do was actually reading Sandy Woodward's uh, memoir on his time as a task group commander in the Falklands War, and and um, and although you know that was um, quite a few years before, and the scale was slightly different. He was a task force commander, and I was just you know just had you know a dozen ships, but the um, the thing that I found was it contextualised what you were experiencing and a number of things that he talked about for example that uh, he got immensely frustrated with having to do with media when he was trying to fight a war Um, uh, we talked about that my staff and I talked about that before the conflict started saying this is something that you know Sandy Woodward talked about it's probably going to happen to us so when it did actually happen to us and we were dealing with uh, media um, and and the the uh, the headquarters back home wanting us to be concentrating on media almost more than the operation we knew well that's just the way it is and and so you were much more relaxed about it all you know so um, and so there was very few things that we did that I hadn't seen in some previous account from someone. Um, And I think also it highlighted just reading, in particular memoirs and uh, biographies, is people grow over time, they make mistakes, things go wrong, um, um, don't expect your operational plan to to survive first contact with the enemy, it it will change. So it's all those sort of things that you just, you've just, um, I think you're just a, a lot more informed before those things happen. So I just think I was much better prepared because I had immersed myself in, in those sorts of um, accounts. Well, Peter, I might ask you a, another question. You mentioned there at the outset we're a maritime nation and we need to know our maritime stories and to learn from our maritime stories. And certainly the podcast series has been a major a major tool in, in, in doing that and preserving and telling those stories. So some of our listeners might be interested to know, why why is this the last episode? Yes, it, it's... Uh it's been a very difficult choice, um, and um, I, I have to say I do feel a bit of a heel about this. Um, I think being a small um, small country, sometimes trying to find uh, people to to relieve you of doing something is is difficult, and, and many people who are involved in, in particularly not for profits, will will know trying to find your relief is one of the biggest challenges. Um, and, and so, um, so the. the James and, and I and the, and the rest of the team, we, we just couldn't identify a uh, that next generation right there to take over. It, it takes many, many weeks of preparation to put together the um, these episodes uh, each year um, because you, you not only got the episode, the questions, you've got the multiple uh, panels to identify and to schedule and all that sort of thing. It So, um, so our thought was... We've done the hundredth. Hundred one is probably a uh, a good place to go before we get too stale and tired. Um, and and somewhere in the future, um, our hope is that it will be that new generation that will join the Navy Naval Studies Group, and and so the series may come back in and maybe in a different form. And if it comes out of a different form, that's probably a good thing. 
So there's a challenge out there for any of our midshipmen who are listening in. This is a, this would be a great opportunity to take forward when you when you uh, when you feel ready. So I guess to conclude this entire series, as we've concluded every episode, I'd like to ask each of you just for your some final thoughts on the seven series of the Naval uh, History Podcast uh, that we've had, and what will you miss about it? Well, certainly for me, it uh, when I started reading Naval History, I mean, what was a podcast? Um, what's the internet? Um, didn't even have a computer. And so the means by which people consume history plainly has changed. And podcasts, surprisingly, um, are incredibly um, attractive to people because they can listen to them anywhere. I, some years ago, I had a couple of my books turned into talking books. And I remember, thought, oh, I'd better listen to this, see how it seems. And they're professional actors doing voiceovers for this kind of thing. And as one of my books was being read, I thought, oh, that was interesting. I didn't know that. I thought, oh, come on. You wrote it, you fool. Um, but that was what it was like. You know, having someone read it to you or having being part of a conversation, uh, I think, is another dimension, just to sitting in a, in a room with a book. Now, that, that way of consuming history will continue. But having a conversation, um, the early ones we we uh, also filmed, and that was you know again exponentially more difficult because we had some people then who just had the had the nerves. So at least speaking, there's one less thing they need to worry about, like you know what am I going to wear? Am I going to have same coloured socks? Things like that. So I do think that um, I will certainly miss um, just listening to people whenever I'm sort of in the mood, talk about matters that I otherwise wouldn't have touched on. And in as much as um, Peter brought together some real experts in the field, I thought, um, you know, I'm really hearing it from the horses here. Um, this is this is this is great, and it will abide because the internet will be as long as with us as long as libraries, I presume, and therefore the things we're saying now, uh, maybe 30, 40 years time, uh, when there's another, you know, Goldrick and Jones around, they'll say this is what they said, and they'll take a clip. Uh, and compare or contrast. Or even someone like Harold Farkham, I've never actually heard him speak. And so when I when I was doing my biography of Harold Holt, when I heard him speak, I thought, oh, that sounds terrible. You know, he wasn't a great orator compared to Menzies. Now, in terms of what commanders do, they communicate, and therefore to hear people speak is going to be really important. And so this is an evocative voice, or this one's a bit squeaky, or this person need to overcome how they personally projected themselves in order to bring people into the task they were doing. So uh, it's a kind of uh, a new dimension to naval history, a very welcome one, and I'm sure it, this will just be an inspiration for that which is to come. James? Well, I think the fact that we can uh, have every expectation that it will be retained and accessible, so you've got this bank of the 101 podcasts. The other thing is the spontaneity of the conversations that, really Tom was implying because the, the good thing about the podcast is it isn't scripted uh, people do think about the questions ahead but inevitably something comes up because somebody else has said something you trigger and it comes out and I think many of the most interesting insights the uh, revelations about the reality of naval life or the problems people are facing comes from that being triggered by something someone else had said so as I say, it's the it's the freshness of them, and I think uh, they'll stay fresh, even as they're retained over many years. Peter, yes, well, I'd just like to acknowledge the um, the support of uh, all, all our listeners, um, and as Tom said, um, the number of people who've approached me who've said, "Oh, I listen to it uh, when I'm commuting or walking the dog or in the garden," um, and 
and and actually that always um, resonated we, before each podcast recording we always said to the panel makes just think of the people you're talking to are the people walking a dog or in the garden so um, just try and speak uh, in plain English um, so it's the audience um, John Carroll from the creative media unit from the very day one where I approached him this is what we like to do the university had never done a podcast before um, um, uh, it just shows how time has changed so we all collectively had to learn um, but John um, approached that with uh, really um, uh, good good humor and um, and uh, and um, and podcasts are a bit like making sausages. Um, um, they sound a lot neater in the final release than what they sometimes are at the beginning. Um, so, um, so it's really also there was nearly two hundred uh, participants and compares. So all those people um, uh, really giving of their of their services has been really greatly appreciated and uh, and hopefully appreciated going forward in future years. Well, certainly, as one of those compares, all I can say is on behalf of all of the compares that uh, it's certainly been a privilege to be involved and to hear these stories, profound, arcane, small, big, things that will never be in print but are now preserved orally as part of our naval and maritime history. I think that's a significant achievement. And sadly, that's all we have time for. So my thanks to Tom Frame, James Goldrick and Peter Jones for all their recollections today and for their unparalleled commitments of time and effort over the seven seasons of this podcast. So the 101 podcasts in this series have been produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales with the assistance of the university's creative media unit. Their production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy Sea Power Centre, the Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. All of the 101 Australian Naval History podcasts remain available for you and others to listen to. So thank you all for joining us. And if you like this episode and all of the ones before it, please let other people know about the Australian Naval History podcast series. Goodbye for now.